You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. First of all, I'd like to thank all of you for coming out and joining us for Conclave 2013 here in Chicago. We're very, very proud. Yes. Much. I'm sure we got that on film. We can fix that in post. Um, we're very, very proud of our city, and we're very, very proud of what we've accomplished here. And one of the signs of that accomplishment is being able to draw important figures and important writers and thinkers to come speak to us and participate in the conclave. So I'd like to introduce Richard Smoley. Uh, Richard was born in Waterbury, Connecticut, and he's had, he says, a lively interest in spiritual matters, at least from the age of 10, where his great aunt, a nun, took him aside and told him that he was maybe thinking a little too much about religion. <laughs> Uh, he did his undergraduate work at Harvard College, where he worked on the university's uh, well-known and venerable literary magazine, The Harvard Advocate, and edited an anthology entitled First Flowering, The Best of The Harvard Advocate, 1866 to 1976. Uh, I'd like to point out he wasn't there for the beginning, um, so that was uh, much more of a review. Uh, that has since been published by Addison Wesley. It was published in 1977. And it contained writings ranging from early poetry from people like T.S. Eliot, Eaton Cummings, and Wallace Stevens, to such more modern poets as Lou Reed and the lyrics from Sweet Jane. After he took his bachelor's degree and graduated magna cum laude in classics at Harvard in 78, Smalley went on to the University of Oxford in the UK, where he edited The Pelican, magazine of Corpus Christi College. And he took his second BA in the Honors School Literary Humanities, Classics and Philosophy, in 1980, and received his MA in Oxford, uh, from Oxford in 1985. You probably know him best as the editor of Gnosis Magazine, uh, and also the author of Inner Christianity. So without any further ado, because you didn't come here to listen to me talk, I'd like to introduce Richard Smalley. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. And I'm glad to see that you all uh, possess or uh, maintain the first requirement uh, that one must have on the esoteric path, which is a sense of humor. <laughs> if you lose that, you really totally lost your bearings, and I think you know. So it's not really just an option. It's a pleasant one to have on hand. All right, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the ideas in my book, Inner Christianity. Uh, I imagine some of them will be familiar to you. If you've read the book, I hope at least some of them will be familiar. Um, but it's not a bad idea to give an overview and to uh, say a little bit about uh, how one might approach the inner life through uh, an esoteric Christian uh, framework. Something, obviously, that you've all thought a great deal about. Um, the word esoteric is a funny one. And it comes from Greek roots meaning further in. Um, originally, the word was applied in Greek to works that were not really written for public consumption, but the only for the students of certain schools. Those of you who've read Aristotle 
will note that Aristotle's literary style is rather boring. And it may strike you as curious to know that Aristotle was regarded as a very beautiful and accomplished literary stylist in antiquity. Why is this? Well, all of the works, more or less, possible exception of one that Aristotle wrote for public consumption uh, are lost. And everything that we now have of his are basically edited lecture notes of his that his students put together after he was dead. So lecture notes are bound to be rather dry, so his writing is rather dry. So in this sense, uh, all of the works that we have of Aristotle um, are esoteric. They were for his students. They were not published. They did not have the beautiful literary style that he was known for. Plato, for some curious reason, is the opposite. Uh, Plato is known for having a beautiful literary style. I mean, his works are uh, were written for public consumption, his dialogues uh, and uh, some of the letters that he wrote. Uh, I don't think that there's really anything left of his uh, esoteric teaching. That is to say, what he taught at the school. I know some people claim that certain dialogues in his were written as kind of esoteric texts and only um, uh, used uh, within the school. Some say that these were written later, but um, that's a matter of dispute. So anyway, that's one sense of further in. Um, another sense of further in is, of course, going further into oneself. And at some point, I would say the esoteric path really has to, has at least some uh, stage of this, some element of it. Um, and another element that most esoteric teachings seem to have is they have these very elaborate systems with very elaborate verbiage describing different levels of reality. Uh, I work at the Theosophical Society, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with the Theosophical System, which is very elaborate and has all sorts of um, interesting Sanskrit names. Um, it always becomes a little tricky uh, in any of these systems, and not many people are able to do it, but to try to relate all of these elaborate terms and names to one's actual experience. Um, I could, for example, use the, the theosophical term kama manas, which is you know, desire mind, literally. Um, you know, we could talk about that. It, you know, it becomes a little trickier to like look in oneself and say, well, where is this in me? How do I see it operating? Uh, theory is easy enough to spout. Because I'm not talking to a theosophical audience, I'm not going to use that terminology, so you can rest assured on that score. Thank you. Um, yeah. um, but you'll also notice that there are uh, an enormous number of different levels and layers from system to system. And you kind of wonder why are there so many different uh, schemas? Some of them, you know, that are very elaborate. Some of them are, are simple. And I guess I, I would uh, draw the analogy of the color spectrum. Um, 
I think you'll all agree with me that people with normal human vision see a certain range of the color spectrum. That's probably universal. But if you look at different languages in the world, you'll find they have they've widely different numbers of color terms. Some have very many, some have very few. I think there's one language someone found somewhere that only has terms for light and dark. Um, ancient Greek actually had comparatively few color words. Uh, as an aside, I can point out that uh, if you look at Homer, you'll see uh, he refers to green honey. Well, did they have green honey in those days? No. Um, the word uh, for green, uh, chloros, as in chlorophyll, was used to describe the bandwidth of the uh, color spectrum that we would call yellow and green. So they had a somewhat, uh, they broke it up in, in somewhat wider bands in their color terms than we do. English has a lot, but even so, you know, say greenish yellow or yellowish green, unless you're you know, a decorator or a paint manufacturer, in which case you come up with all sorts of <laughs> wonderful, colorful names for which we have to thank them. So I would say that this is partly why the number of levels and layers within a given system uh, uh, vary so much. And we could take it, you know, in, uh, in many different directions. But since we're here, dealing with things from an esoteric Christian point of view. Um, I'll set out with what I think is a, a simple but plausible schema for looking at these things. Um, an esoteric system, I would say, has to be some kind of framework for organizing experience. If it is about inner experiencing and understanding inner experience, uh, it should provide some kind of structure or method for uh, working with that and understanding it. I mean, I think a useful example is the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, which, you know, for a fairly, it is actually a fairly simple diagram, uh, enables one to plot a lot of different things on it and uh, uh, understand quite a different thing, a number of things, including uh, human psychology. I've never met two Kabbalists who had the same exact system, and that seems to be true pretty much throughout the history of that tradition, but, um, but um, the esoteric Christian view, or an esoteric Christian view that I want to suggest is a way of experiencing or categorizing three basic levels of experience or levels of experiencing. Well, let's, let's, let's actually do a little meditation. Um, if you'd all just... Uh, Begin by allowing yourself to 
feel your feet on the floor, your seat in the chair, your back against the back of the chair. It's probably helpful if your position is uh, both alert and relaxed, however that uh, works for you. And so you're feeling your feet on the floor, your legs and back against the chair. Allow yourself to relax and take a couple of deep breaths. Now let your attention come to the sensations of the body, however they present themselves to you. And that may change from moment to moment. You may have a sensation in the leg one second and a sensation in the arm in the other, and that's, that's fine. Whatever presents itself to you, as long as you're focused, the time being, on the sensations of the body. and it's fine if it doesn't, that you start to experience these sensations of the body almost as like little currents or eddies of energy, which again come and go. Certainly not necessary try to control these sensations or these energies as they come up, but allow yourself to be aware of them. sensations of the body. Now, let your attention go to the film of thoughts, images, and emotions that are flashing across the screen of the mind. You may have found when you were trying to sense the body that these images came up presented themselves whether you wanted them to or not. And at this point, simply let them come up and watch them as if you're watching images on a movie screen. And 
theorize they come and go. you are, the more random these images start to seem. And again, that's perfectly fine. <coughs> You'll also notice that some of these images and ideas and thoughts or verbal or whatever, or have some kind of emotional response in you, light, intense, positive or negative. See then if you can watch these emotions coming up. From the same kind of alert objective perspective that you use with the images and the sensations of the body. Feelings come and go. desires. I want this. I want that. I don't like this. I don't like that. Then you watch them. been able to observe the sensations of the body, the images and the emotions of the mind. What then is doing the observing? Who is doing the looking? thoughts or the emotions themselves because of course they can always be seen. So what is this unseen seer? Of course it's not a question that um, needs a verbal or conceptual answer. But a certain kind of 
inner inquiry. May be possible to follow this eye. further in to a place of greater stillness. There's always further to go. Now you can gently let the exercise drop. Come back to your ordinary state of consciousness. You might feel it useful to sense your feet against the, on the floor, your uh, back against the chair again. Just uh, make connection with uh, the outside world. So any thoughts or comments on uh, that experience? Anybody notice anything? Yeah. I am you know, already uh, you know, exhausted from the wonderful conclave. So I found myself tripping towards sleep <laughs> and then pulling back. Mm -hmm. and, and it was, I think, the point where you said, you're going to find these images become more random and you know much you know further beyond your your sort of conscious control was the moment right before you know I would feel myself slipping into something that felt like sleep and and it was that that sort of gray area in between that was the point where I felt that I could have access to something that was perhaps more inward well, it's curious you say that because at that point in the exercise, I was thinking of saying something about that. Those random images, as they become increasingly random, they become closer toward uh, uh, what we would call a dream state. Uh, and the reason I didn't say that is uh, that gets more into the level of theory, which I didn't want to get into at that particular point. But it is interesting that uh, uh, you picked up on that, or I picked up on that, whatever. Um, yeah, um, these things, I mean, it's, it's it, and this brings up the whole question of dreaming, in that a dream is pretty much what you just described. It's these series of thoughts and images. Uh, the dream world is different from our world, but it's not perhaps radically different in the sense that you're experiencing something. Um, its laws seem to vary from uh, that of physical reality. For example, if, if someone said, uh, you know, I had a dream in which I flew, a lot of people have, no one would really think very much of it. If you, if you thought, uh, you know, you've actually flown physically like a, 
who was oh Saint Joseph of Cupertino? Yeah. He was a Catholic saint who was supposed to be able to levit levitate. But, well, that would be a little bit more remarkable. Um, nonetheless, it is although it's it's a a world that's different from ours. It's still a world that can be experienced, and in a sense, it's still not you. If you want to, you know, go into this question a lot more deeply, you can go into the realm of lucid dreaming. I don't know if any of you has ever had a lucid dream, mm -hmm. but you're aware. Since you're aware uh, that you're dreaming when you're dreaming, um, things can get more interesting. You can change the dream. Uh, for example, you can uh, do lots of things with it, uh, and you know there are people who uh, work with this and get very good. Any other comments? Um, I, I'm always aware that of how mercurial the the thought process is, and I'm always really cognizant of how influential the subject of awareness and their experience has changed like those thoughts, if, if their memories specifically, their memories of, of how I perceived it, you know, and not necessarily the way things are, and um, I think shift in, in different ways that way. So in my process, there was always like, this is how I remember it, and then there was like, but this is how it really happened. You know, so, you know, and, uh, and so there's a, there was this con, I don't want to say like attention, but there was, there was something within me that was kind of saying, even though it's a dream state, um, it has to be truthful. You know, it can't be delusional in that way if, if it's going to be functional. Right. Yeah, a couple of points to that. One is, of course, that whether you know, a dream is telling you the truth, let's say you dream of a plane crash or something like that, it, it's you know, not necessarily predicting a plane crash. Um, but in any case, you have dreamt of a plane crash. That fact of that experience uh, is, is true. Um, the other thing that's interesting about what you say is, uh, if I understand what you're saying, uh, it makes me think of um, a friend of mine who had a narrow encounter with a shark when he was like, 13 years old. And he told the story very well, and he'd apparently told it a lot. And he said, you know, I've told that so many times that you know, I, I feel like I'm remembering the story rather than the experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, it's a story that you've told gets a little bit worn, uh, a little bit uh, overused, the tape uh, um, a little too familiar, it can be like that. It becomes a legend. Excuse me? It becomes a legend. Yeah. 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 <laughs> My own personal legend. You know, as, as uh, with all legends, there's always a desire to embellish and uh, elaborate. Interesting, you were, used the word mercurial, of course, because uh, this aspect of the mind uh, does seem to have some of the uh, qualities of mercury, which is fluid. and. Uh, it's very responsive, right? Um, we use mercury to uh, gauge uh, temperature because it's so very sensitive and responsive to temperature. Uh, uh, you know, another metal like gold or silver, yeah, it does respond to temperature, but not that quickly and not that obviously. Uh, we can't really perceive uh, temperature that way. And um, 
and I think in that discussion of uh, uh, the old uh, stories about um, the elements of alchemy, maybe a great deal about uh, that kind of correlation. Is alchemy really about making gold, or is it about uh, some other inner experience? And uh, you know that would be a long uh, lecture and/or conclave in itself. Anyone <laughs> <laughs> else? Um, I noticed in the uh, <coughs> pardon me in the transition period uh, between you talking about noticing these images become a little bit more varied, and then the part when you got to um, the dialogue of the unobserved observer, um, I noticed my personal images that were flowing around almost came directly to the uh, perception of my body as a mental construct and it absolutely dissolving. It was almost like seeing the bones, the musculature and everything just dissolve and seeing what they actually are as physical elements separate from the mental spiritual continuum. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, it's kind of obvious, and yet in a way it's not so obvious that um, the body that you experience is not the body that gets laid out on the dissecting table after you, you're died. You died. Um, you know, that body with all of its you know, organs and fibers and whatnot, that, you know, it's kind of an anatomical object. It's not really what you experience. I mean, how aware are you on a day-to-day -day basis of your liver? Maybe that's a bad But you know what I mean. <laughs> Check it every morning. <laughs> it's possible to simplistically or simply uh, organize your experience into three categories. There is uh, yeah, sensation. Funnily enough, this, at least to some degree, has a kind of collective quality or a consensus quality to it. Uh, no one can really tell you, of course, whether you have a pain in your arm or not. But, you know, there is going to be some kind of consensus uh, about sensory or auditory reality. Right? There has to be some, probably, consensus that all of you are seeing a whiteboard up here. If someone doesn't see a whiteboard or see something radically different than a whiteboard, then, you know, there's a problem. It's really good acid. <laughs> really good acid. Or bad, I suppose. Um, so there is a consensual quality in this, this realm of the body, um, although it's not completely uh, a matter of that. Um, when you go into the realm of thoughts and images, It still seems to, it seems to be completely subjective by contrast. Uh, if at some point in that exercise I were to stop and say, "Tell me what image was going through your head at that very moment," every one of you very likely would have a very different image. 
no one could possibly say I didn't. You could, for some reason, uh, choose to lie about it. And, uh, you know, unless you like a very, very bad liar, uh, no one would be able to tell. <laughs> so that is the realm of thoughts. Um, emotions are also very, very uh, subjective. Maybe not quite as individual as we like to think. Uh, to take a, a subject that uh, uh, could really take us far afield, you know, if you go to a room that has a pretty creepy atmosphere, probably a good number of people who are going to go and experience that room will kind of experience something creepy in there. What that is is, you know, another story, but um, there's some consensual things to that. People um, often experience uh, similar emotions at a, a sunset. But these are, this is pretty subjective. Uh, this is totally an internal world. Uh, and this is, you know, the world of the psyche. By the way, As an aside, I may note that in, say, the standard translations of the New Testament, every time the word soul appears, it's a translation of this. Now, hey, we've just answered uh, a deeply metaphysical, important question, almost without uh, wanting to. Do you have a soul? Yeah, we do. The soul is, in a sense, the entire body of these thoughts and images. It has a structure of its own. Some people, like Jung uh, and Freud, uh, even you know, try to discern the character of the structure of the psyche, which is not the same as the structure of the brain. If you read the works of Jung, for example, there is almost no talk about anatomy or neurology or anything like that. But it is an attempt to be an anatomy of the psyche, accurate or not. You could even speak of a, a psychic body or a psychological body. Um, in, in this case, of course, a body doesn't mean a physical thing. But let's define body in an esoteric way as a vehicle for organizing experience at a certain level. Your body, as a physical form, enables you to organize your experience of the physical realm. It enables you to uh, see when someone uh, dangerous is coming, see when you know, there's some food that you know, might be desirable that you can reach. Um, and the soul is this organization of things in your psyche, which sometimes have uh, good qualities. Sometimes there are, as we all know, there are rational fears. Something terrified you when you were four years old and you're still terrified of it even though you don't know why. Um, but that's the soul. 
Um, it's all experience, all experience, I submit to you, can be broken down into these two categories. You, it's either something you experience mentally, conceptually, whether it's a, a, a dream image or a complex mathematical formula, or it's something you experience physically. All scientific ex uh, investigation you know, is really an attempt to organize physical experience uh, with some enhanced physical uh, experience. We can only see so much of a bandwidth, but because we have various uh, uh, instruments and that kind of thing, we can perceive a, a wider bandwidth. We have no reason to believe that this whole bandwidth that we know of, or it's, it's defined scientifically, of course, from uh, uh, cosmic rays to whatever, is the totality of, of what all that is. We have every reason to believe it isn't. Science does forget that. Uh, and it tends to treat anything it can't experience in some kind of way through its own instruments um, as unreal. But that's another, another debate entirely. So, that's it. That's it. Uh, your soul and your body. Now, we haven't touched on this question of whether the soul is immortal or not. Yeah. Uh, no, continue. Um, we haven't really touched on the question whether the soul is immortal or not. Um, and why don't we leave it aside for the time being as a distraction. Well, there is the third uh, thing. The only thing that uh, doesn't fit into one of these categories. These are categories of experience, and then there's the experiencer. It's what's doing the seeing. You can never see it. You might, it, in some kind of weird way, catch a glimpse of it, but you're never going to be at the same point where, where you're seeing it. Uh, you could say that there's certain sacred symbols are an attempt to represent this silent eye or witness uh, in some kind of symbolic way. But it's always going to be symbolic. And you can attach various names to it. Um, I would say that in New Testament times, this was at least associated with the spirit. So you have the esoteric Christian uh, vision of the human uh, structure into spirit, soul, and body. Now, this is interesting because, if nothing else, it enables us to understand what the difference between the soul and the spirit is, or what at least it might be. If you ask even a fairly sophisticated theologian, um, maybe even especially a sophisticated theologian, what the difference between the soul and the spirit is, you're going to get like a really vague, confused answer. Because this was 
forgotten. It was known, as you know, in ancient Christianity. The Gnostics uh, were particularly big on this, and all of humanity was categorized according to these three things. There are those, you know, who, who for whom reality is only or exclusively or predominantly sensory. You know, uh, uh, a literary figure, Stanley Kowalski, and a streetcar named Desire. The kind of carnal man. I would suggest that the picture of Esau in the book of Genesis is an attempt to represent this type. Right? What what's the key moment in Esau's life? Well, um, he comes in and he's hungry, and his brother said, Well, I got this nice lentil stew here. Um, for some reason, people always assume it's lentil stew. I have no real reason why, but no real reason why it's anyway. Um, and He's willing to sell his birthright on the spur of the moment for, for his lending yeah. stew. Uh, because he can't see past the immediate gratification of the senses. Therefore, you know, he's stuck at that level. He doesn't get the birthright. As you all know. Um, Jacob, at least say Jacob in his sort of unawakened state or uninitiated state. It's probably a little more like the, the, what the, they used to call the psychic man. This has nothing to do with uh, uh, psychic powers, but rather uh, someone who's oriented in that level, toward that level. And probably most people are at this level. You're, you know, if you're oriented at this level, you have some impulse control, right? You know that um, you know the woman three stools down the bar is really attractive. Uh, on the other hand, you have some concept of what this might do to your marriage. Just you know, uh, exchanges uh, glances were exchanged uh, any further in you know, a certain direction. Blah blah blah. You know, similarly, you might want uh, you know uh, uh, spend all kinds of money on technology, but you know enough. Or just hope you know enough to uh, uh, delay that gratification until you actually have the money in the bank to do that. <laughs> some do, some don't. It's called layaway. That may not have been a good example. Love history. So these are people who, whose reality, people like this tend to be oriented and identified with their thoughts and emotions, and they do have impulse control. But Classically, a person like this isn't able to see much further. I suppose, uh, to take another literary example, you might uh, uh, look at Tolstoy's Ivan Ilyich. Anyone ever read The Death of Ivan Ilyich? Uh, the story is this, basically, that um, he wants to get his hands on a piece of property. Um, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I've got, I'm sorry, confusing that with Master and Man. Um, um, in Master and Man, this guy wants to get his hands on a piece of property, and he's kind of blind to um, the uh, fact that he's going to be stuck in a snowstorm, and he eventually gets killed in the snowstorm. He dies in the snowstorm. You know, he's he's able to you know see certain advantage, but it entails a certain kind of blindness in another realm. <coughs> 
And there is ideally, uh, at any rate, this kind of third level of individual who is able to step back from all of these and we see these in some kind of perspective. Just to have the insight that I am not my thoughts and desires. You know, all in all, to, to really have an insight into that, um, even to see it once or twice, is probably more than most people do. Um, you know, it's, uh, there are certain audiences uh, to whom I probably would have difficulty explaining this concept. And just, you know, yeah, you know, people just draw a blank. But there is something that can pull yourself back from them. the state of identification, and, and this is very um, elusive and tenuous. The spirit bloweth where it listeth, and it can certainly attach itself to any of these things. You can think your uh, your thoughts and your desires. Uh, you can attach yourself to a certain limited fixed identity of yourself that may or may not actually have anything to do with the way you really are. If it's really uh, out of step with the way a lot of people will call you either a phony or a hypocrite or you know, serious levels, you can become someone's like dissociated. But, so this is kind of, these two levels are people who are identified and this, shall we say, uh, are people who are at least comparatively free, or at least aware of the possibility of freedom. And this is what the Gnostics, you know, these are the pneumatic people. Um, uh, of course, if you're creating an elite group, the members of the elite group are always you and your coterie. So, and this can get very exclusivistic and get very negative uh, toward everyone else in the outside world. And I su suspect that this is one reason that the Gnostics uh, eventually, it's not the only reason, I think it's one reason that Gnosticism in its classic form didn't quite make it across the centuries, that at least in certain forms it got very exclusivistic and elitist. Um, and the minute you start uh, dividing people into categories like this, you immediately become uh, blind to the fact that, well, you know, at times everyone is sort of Esau. You know, you've been driving for 12 hours. You're just tired. It's possible, it's possible, to somehow detach yourself from that tiredness. Um, but it's not usually what we do, you're just tired. If I brought up something like this after you were driving for 12 hours, would you want to hear it? No, you wouldn't. You just wouldn't get off the road and rest or have a cup of coffee or doing whatever you know, uh, would make you feel better. So we're all identified in that, that sense at certain times. You know, we're also identified with our personal agendas. Um, we all have you know, goals in life, say, uh, way, ways we want to see them appear. And a lot of times we're identified with those. So the idea that 
you know, there are these three rigid categories um, is not really very realistic or very accurate and probably ends up becoming kind of a blind or a, um, a dead end. Because suddenly, if you decide you're one of the pneumatic, you're one of the, the initiates, let's say you've gone through some uh, type of initiation, whatever uh, it is, or whatever you like. Well, now I'm an initiate, so I don't have to think about that anymore. So you start denying the times when you do get irritable when you've been driving for uh, 12 hours, when you, uh, you know, feel a desire for you know, an extra, you know, slice of cake that you shouldn't have for some reason or another. Um, you start to deny that that's possible for you because you're, after all, a pneumatic person. And so you start to become more and more blind and more and more dissociated uh, from the way you really are. Rather than, you know, seeing it, sort of noticing on a moment-to-moment -moment basis that, you know, yeah, identified here. You know, that happens sometimes. Again, to be aware that the, the fact of being identified and the possibility of being identified is sort of the first step to freedom. It may not be the last step to freedom, but it would be very hard to imagine any way of getting out of this little cycle without that. Yeah. Have you seen a correlation between this and the I am statements of like Old and New Testaments and even like Thunder Perfect Mind and stuff where uh, to me it, it, I've always seen it as like I am blank pneuma psyche body and 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 the Gnostic problem is we're always caught up in the blank I'm fat, I'm rich, I'm a lawyer, I'm irritable, I'm this and the am is I have thoughts so therefore I am I think therefore I am and it gives an identity but the I is the undefinable pneuma you know, and so have you found that those statements were maybe like a more primitive way of having this long conversation of, of identifying with that same philosophy? I see it from a slightly different angle. Um, let's say, for the sake of argument, that we stopped here. This is the whole system, right? This is it. Nowhere else to go. What else is there? There's the perceiver, there's the perceived in its various forms. What else could there possibly be? Um, well, this can get rather, uh, shall we say, solipsistic. You know, I'm just, uh, you know, certain disciplines, certain like Hindu schools even seem to regard this kind of solipsism as kind of the end of the spiritual path. Uh, the Samkhya, for one, which is uh, something I write about in another book of mine called The Dice Game of Shiva, uh, which, all, which is a development of these ideas, and I'm not going to take it there and use this language because uh, you know, I'm using a particular uh, uh, series of terms in a particular context. So this gets very solipsistic. And what is the way out of that? Well, can't really go into the world. By the way, you could say this is all the world. Here we 
the inner world, the outer world. Can't go out of it by going into the world because you know, you've already kind of you know, put the world where it is. I would suggest that if one follows this eye back further experientially, as I suggested you could during the exercise, one begins to have a greater, greater sense of a collective eye. You know, the title of one book, uh, The Eye That Is We. And then, you know, then of course it gets weird because, you know, you suddenly discovered that what's most intimately me, what's really me, what's really I, is precisely that which you share with everybody else. And that's all as bizarre. You think, well, wait a minute. Everyone's always going around mouthing the slogan, we are all one. In what sense are we all one? In conventional terms, it's utterly meaningless. No, we're not one. You know, there's me here and you there. There's, you know, any number of this. This is just bullshit. Only, only if you kind of follow this I back far enough into the sense of I am, shall we say kind of the cosmic I am that exists in all things, you know, does it become true? And to go back to what your question was, I would say the I am statements, particularly in the Gospel of John, are ways of characterizing or saying something about this greater I. I am the way. Well, this is kind of the way, shall we say, out of your predicament. I am the door, you know, again, it's the, it's the door out. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Well, that's interesting. True vine. Um, you all its branches. Well, this I, this I am, is in a sense the vine out of which we're all branches out of which we kind of draw some kind of common life. And, you know, I'm suggesting that all of those statements in the Gospels and, you know, you know New Testament and otherwise uh, are at least attempts to reflect on this kind of larger collective self. That would be my thought. So, essentially what you're saying, um, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding it, is that it requires an ontological leap from individual identification into a more dynamic, uh, pneumatic experience mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the I and thou type mm -hmm. relation. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, as long as the concepts don't become too destructive. Uh, right. Um, you know, there's, as you know, one of the distractions in any kind of meditative practice is, is you have an experience which is kind of interesting or fresh or something like that. And then you can, um, mind starts commenting on it and it starts explaining it to itself and then the experience is lost. I, uh, the Theosophical Society, we got this new gadget. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually a computer program called M-Wave. And uh, this has to do with the Heart Math Institute. Some of you are familiar with that. If you're not, you can just go on their website and work all you want. So, so we got this software. I was sort of playing with it. Um, the idea is that you want to be what they call coherent, some kind of correlate, some kind of harmony between heart and mind, that kind of thing.
something. This can be measured uh, through this biofeedback thing that's part of the computer. Um, and, you know, I was playing with it. And inevitably, you know, particularly at the beginning, you know, first you're not in this coherent state, this desirable coherent state, and then suddenly, you know, relax enough so that you are, they say, hey, I'm in this coherent state, and then you go out. <laughs> and that, you know, is, you know, a very obvious and kind of graphic way of, um, of saying that the minute you start thinking too much about it or the idea becomes interesting and you start to follow as an idea, uh, the experience can be lost. Now, I enjoy thinking about these ideas as much as anybody, you know, and kind of explaining them myself, nobody else. So, you know, I don't think this is like a pernicious or bad thing. It's just that it is a potential obstacle. Any other thoughts? I just, if I could just make a, a comment, one of the ways that I sort of try to explain this in, in talking to some of my introduction to philosophy students mm -hmm. is, is to say, well, you know, to ask the question, how many bodies are there in the classroom? Mm -hmm. They all come, you know, there's 30. How many souls are there in the classroom? And, you know, 30. How many spirits are there? And, and if we're reading Aquinas, say, the answer is one. Uh, you know, that it, it's not that I have a spirit and you have a spirit. It's that we partake of spirit. Mm -hmm. and, and that seems to be a very, very concrete way to, to talk about this idea, in what meaningful sense are we one? You know, what, what would that possibly mean? That's, that's good, I like that. And it also explains, uh, you know, some of the usages in ordinary language, like, like it or not, we're all expressions of the spirit of our time. 